You're listening to Potstilled Radio, sponsored by Dingle Distillery, McConnell's Irish Whiskey, and Two Stacks Irish Whiskey. Dingle Distillery has been crafting some of the most beautiful handcrafted spirits since 2012. All of their whiskey continuously matures in the mild, moist climate of Ireland's southwest coast. Hand cut from the edge and keep your eyes peeled for their brand new core range single malt in stores now. Find out more at dingledistillery.ie. And of course, McConnell's, their five years old blend of Irish malt and grain whiskies is gently rested in select bourbon casks, bringing out beautiful overtones of vanilla sweetness and providing a deep oak woodiness and light char to the finish. Find out more about a McConnell's whiskey with F-E-E across social media or visit mcconnellsirishwhiskey.com. And of course, Two Stacks Irish Whiskey, a contemporary revival of an Irish whiskey heritage, independently bottling and blending sourced pot still malt and grain whiskies from across Ireland's new and expanding Irish whiskey landscape. Find out more at twostackswhiskey.com. And it's one, two, three, get some whiskey and me tea. Make sure it's Irish whiskey, that's whiskey with any. Give me one, two, three, pour some whiskey and me tea. Let's drink to the health of our nations and for peace and liberty. So it's one, two, three, get that whiskey flowing free. We are part in class, be not our last, their souls forever free. Give me one, two, three. Steve Galer, Fulgicadi on Show A Pot Still Radio. His mission, Maihu Haley in a Gioni. August Inu, Tom Leshna, Banished Organo on Nahaja, August Nahostralia, Contealing Kodokta Frischke, Mr. Martin Lynch, Fulgicadi on Show A Martin. How are you doing? Good, my good, Mass. Doing great. And once again, welcome everyone to another episode of Postal Radio. As always, I am your host, Matt Healy. And today I am delighted to be joined by the commercial manager of uh, the Asia Pacific region for Teeling Whiskey Company, Mr. Martin Lynch. So once again, this time, uh, Asperla, welcome to the show, Martin. Pleasure to be here, Matt. I'm delighted to be able to catch up. Obviously, one of the most far-flung markets from Ireland and obviously is in English speaking markets. So you're in the Asia Pacific region with, with a lot of similarities, but it is a market that has been booming for Irish whiskey over the last few years. It's great to be able to catch up with yourself. You've got a, you know, a large market insight for the, the APAC area uh, and particularly in the, the Australian market. So for people that don't know you or what your job title entails, can you give us a little detail about what, what it is you do for, for Teeling Whiskey Company down under? Yeah, absolutely. So in my role as Asia Pacific Commercial Manager, I'm essentially responsible for our whiskey exports to every country in the region. So at the moment, my role would involve managing 15 different markets that sell our region across or sell our whiskey across Asia Pacific. Um, including Australia. So that would be everything from uh, finding distributors on the ground, meeting with buyers, um, being involved in product launches, budgeting, uh, advertising and promotion plans. So it's very wide ranging. And when you're talking about Asia Pacific, what kind of outside of Australia, what kind of markets are are you in uh, with, with Teeling Whiskey? Yeah, it's, uh, well, I started out with Teeling in 2014, I suppose, unofficially via Bordbia. I worked on the Bordbia Fellowship Program for Teeling among a couple of other brands. And at that stage, 
Teeling was still in the very early stages of um, expansion, I suppose, outside Ireland. Um, Australia was one of the first international markets outside Europe and the US that we launched in. Um, officially, I came on board working full-time with Teeling in 2015 when I finished up with Borbia. And at that time, we had made, I think we were doing a little bit of business in Japan, um, maybe one or two other markets, very small scale. And over the course of the past six years, throughout my role, I have uh, oversaw the launch into pretty much every market in, in the Asia Pacific region. Um, most recently, we would have uh, launched healing in the likes of Mongolia, um, India, and next up, um, one of the last, I suppose, distribution holes to fill in the region would be Sri Lanka. But Australia being the the big market in the region and the, re the market that has been familiar with Irish whiskey for a very long time since the foundation of the country, uh, pretty much it would have been Irish whiskey rolling off those um, ships in the very early days, whereas in comparison um, for the rest of the Asia Pacific region outside, not forgetting New Zealand, which would be very similar to Australia, but obviously um, a much smaller market um, where you go outside Australia, New Zealand and Irish whiskey is very much in its infancy and everywhere else in Asia and, and not very well known. Well, that's fair enough. So whereabouts do are you based? And I suppose, what does a day-to-day -day in the role for you look like? Yeah, well, I've been based in Melbourne for the past 10 years. And it, 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 during the course of the pandemic, I've, um, I've actually come back to Dublin to spend some time with family. Um, but Melbourne has been where I've been based for the vast majority of this role. And up until things shut down, it would have involved a lot of travel. It would have involved very regular flights around Australia. Up, I was obviously based in Melbourne, but I would have been in Sydney, Brisbane, um, Adelaide, Perth, Darwin, pretty much everywhere for whiskey shows, the, you know, whiskey lives, as well as a lot of localized whiskey shows, new product launches, buyer meetings, which would generally be Sydney, Melbourne, um, and then at my desk, a lot of the time, not doing the fun, sexy stuff like, you know, hosting uh, tastings or whiskey dinners and that kind of thing, um, doing a lot of the admin stuff and making sure that um, that the, the whiskey actually gets here and all of the back uh, support things actually happen. So um, I think because... Uh, as you mentioned, Australia is so far away and, and so remote um, from our HQ in Dublin. I would have been given uh, extra responsibility to be almost a one-man show. So doing everything from, you know, maybe hosting a whiskey dinner or being on the boot at a whiskey festival to then going and, and meeting uh, the buyer of Dan Murphy's, who are obviously you know, the biggest retailer of alcohol and whiskey and spirits in the country. So very, very wide ranging. And then also um, I was managing the travel retail side of things. So it could have been up in uh, the airport in Sydney doing some uh, training or launch 
activity with uh, travel retail teams. So very wide ranging, which keeps it interesting. Absolutely. So when we start speaking about the likes, and we're going to focus a lot on the Australian market today, but when we're speaking about Australia, you know, Irish whiskey is growing uh, quite quickly. Thankfully, um, large scale retailers, like you mentioned, like Dan Murphy is taking a, a large, a large interest in the category. And um, for people in Australia, what, you know, what does consumption of Irish whiskey look like? Is it on trade, off trade? You know, are we looking at cocktail shots, people picking up their favorite bottle of single malts? This was what's where people find it and what's driving the category. Yeah, it, to be honest, it would be very similar to the Irish market and other developed um, Western markets for Irish whiskey. A huge amount of the volume is done in the off trade it's retail sales, um, which I know will be quite similar here in Ireland, but. Um, and it's probably roughly an 80-20 split where 80% of the sales happen in the off-trade and retail and 20% happen in the on-trade. Um, so it would be similar in that sense if they're if they're buying uh, whiskey in, in a Dan Murphy store or in a retail local bottle shop, um, as they would call an off-license down there, it would be for home consumption, it could be to bring along to a barbecue, it could be mixing with uh, ginger beer or um, Coke, um, or if it's, a, if it's a single malt more often than not, it's probably being drank neat. And then on the on-premise side of things, Australia's got a very, very dynamic uh, cocktail scene, and they will be very connected into American culture um, and very, um, very tuned in in terms of the the modern on-trade cocktail whiskey bar uh, side of the on-premise channel. So they would have some of the world's best bars, and they had, they have been recognised in the in the you know the lists of best bars around the world in the top tens and top fives. And you have a global diaspora of Australian bartenders in places like New York or. London or even here in Dublin, um, including our, our global brand ambassador, who's an, an Aussie who's found his way up here um, to Ireland. So they have a, in the on trade, they have um, a really strong cocktail culture that's been probably the last 10 years has been very, very vibrant and that continues to grow and evolve and they continue to be at the, the forefront of trends in the modern on-trade side of things. And then I suppose in the traditional on-trade, it will be a lot of consumption of house pour whiskey mixed with Coke or ginger beer. Okay. And and you said that we're kind of, they kind of keep a close eye on US trends. You know, is the in the US, a lot of the, the Irish bars, large and small, local, city-based, whatever it may be, we're starting to see back bars filled with with collections of Irish whiskies where 10 years or five years ago would have been three Irish and 40 Scotch. We're now looking at the at the role reversal. Would there be a similar trend in, in the Irish bars of Oz? To a much smaller degree, it's, it's, it's a little bit different in how brand Ireland and being Irish 
sit in Australia and living in Australia, I don't feel you get that uh, free pass of, of, of being an Irish person in America. Um, the, the sort of kudos that gives you of amazing, you're Irish, my great grandfather was Irish, that kind of thing. In Australia, it tends to be um, the reception is a little bit more, you're Irish, great, you know, what else kind of thing. So it's a little bit different in that sense. And um, the, the Australia is obviously a much smaller country. There's 25 million people. The, the vast majority of the population live on the, on the very outer perimeters of the east coast of Australia. 50 to 60 percent of them live in and around Sydney and Melbourne, two cities. So um, there's not that many Irish bars. There are, there are Irish bars, but it's a very, very small um, niche within the, the Irish whiskey uh, sphere, I suppose. So you would have Irish bars having a good selection of Irish whiskey. And as more of it has found its way down to Australia in recent years, they would be happy to stock it. But in terms of actually moving through uh, any kind of volume or having penetration through these Irish bars into a wider Australian population, it's very, very limited. I just want to take a quick pause now just to say a little thank you to our sponsors of this episode. First up, Two Stacks Irish Whiskey, independent bottlers driving innovation in sourcing and blending potstone malt and grain whiskies, the makers of the fantastic Dram in a Can, the world's first whiskey and Irish whiskey, straight whiskey in a 100ml can. You can find out more on twostackswhiskey.com. Of course, the fantastic McConnell's Irish whiskey, whiskey without the E, aged for five years. It's a fantastic blend of malt and grain whiskey that has been matured in bourbon casks, uh, bringing you some really nice sweetness and a really balanced blend. You can find out more on McConnell'sIrishWhiskey.com. And of course, Dingle Distillery, who've been awarded the world's best gin in 2019. And of course, Dingle Vodka was announced as the best Irish vodka for 2021. You can check out more and the availability of their new whiskies on dingledistillery.ie. So, Martin, that's quite interesting when you say about the the, the kind of change of, of perspective there in, in terms of the Irish bars. So outside of that what on on-premise are the places that are stocking the Irish whiskies? Is it the, the cocktail bars pre uh, predominantly or is there another avenue that, that you're finding a lot of the Irish whiskies? Yeah, it's, it's cocktail and whiskey bars and I think Melbourne and Sydney, actually Brisbane, all, all of the parts, all of the cities have had an explosion in cocktail culture and whiskey bars and these would be for premium um, whiskies that I suppose aren't in terms of price point going to be, um, it's not gonna be achievable for them to be house pours and because they're, they're not gonna be cost effective for that nature. So um, premium Irish whiskey is whiskey bars and cocktail bars predominantly um, there's obviously one or two big Irish brands that have been around for a long time who are uh, like they're obviously part of bigger portfolios, Perno, Ricard, Diageo, who can do house pour um, arrangements with bars and bar groups. So it will be very common to find 
them as the house pour whiskey if you go into a bar and order a whiskey and coke or a whiskey and dry in any bar across australia but when you talk about premium whiskey some of the uh, newer generation of irish whiskey like ourselves and teeling or a lot of the new guys you're you're looking at premium whiskey bars and premium cocktail bars who are very interested in the products in the the attributes flavor profiles and they're telling uh, a story and providing an experience to the customers who come to their bars and and when you're going into these bars or you're you, you even imbibing yourself um what do you think is the is the driving factor uh for the bar owners because a lot of the times even in my experience selling whiskey around the world a lot of the times you walk in with your sales pitch and it's we're irish okay so what you know we taste great so what um you know a lot of these whiskey bars you know a lot of people in australia you've got a huge indigenous australian whiskey um movement going obviously scotch rules the roost in terms of global whiskey sales um what do you think are the driving factors for um bars to pick up these whiskeys and then also just people to pick them off the shelves and consumption yeah so you know just to touch on one of your previous previous points about the the build-up of irish whiskey on the back bar i think very different in uh, Australia versus the US where you would go to a Binnie's or a Total Wine or a retail store there and see 100 Irish whiskies, many of which you may never have seen in Ireland and they might have um, sort of what could be labelled as twee type Irish names. Um, that in Australia has, has, never, has never taken off and I think Australian consumers um haven't those sort of um whiskies haven't appealed to them so for a very long time you had one or two brands uh in australia of irish whiskey and they had um and and it's gradually changing but they had a perception of irish whiskey which was very narrow and very limited and in the past only five to six years I think when we entered in in 2014 with Teeling, there was three or four brands of Irish whiskey, and there was very little uh, growth. It was it was relatively stagnant um, outside one brand, um, and there had been various different kind of uh, whiskey Irish whiskeys that had come down on the value side of things, and they just hadn't taken off. And what did appeal to Australians was something that an Irish whiskey that was coming to the to the party that's completely different and was offering something new um, to discover. And th- there at that time there was also you know other driving forces coming in from other whiskey markets. Um, you, you obviously had the likes of Japanese whiskey and Australians have a great connection with Japan. Huge amount of Australians would go there on holiday. They, um, they love Japanese food. It's regarded in, uh, well, it's held in very high regard as a, as a country. And when Japanese whiskey started going on the radar internationally, winning international awards, that would have been a driving force where 
Australians started to look outside the traditional scotch as you mentioned has always been uh the the leader um in whiskey and around the same time i think it was 2014 you had sullivan's cove down in tasmania which won world's best single malt for their french oak cask and it was around then we started to get these uh international whiskies that weren't scotch offering something a little bit different that started to pique the interest of Australians. And that was when we came in um, and we, strangely enough, the, the interest um, in our whiskey that first, or from our portfolio that first got us in was our putchin, which, you know, we were kind of saying, this is not gonna be a, a big mover in Australia. Um, and on the back of that, we, we put in our, our small batch, you know, premium blend rum cask at the same time. And um, as we predicted, the putting stayed very, very niche, apart from a couple of Aussies who uh, braved buying a bottle of, uh, at the time, we had a 61.5% putting. Um, so I did, I, I did have people still come on up to me at Tastings go, well, what happened to your bloody putching? You know, you, you haven't got that one anymore. That was crazy. Um, but for the most part, it was our, our small batch and um, a premium blend. That was the game changer um, for, for us in the Irish category where Aussie started to pay attention. And, and if you look at the growth that's happened in Irish whiskey over the past couple of years in Australia, it's all been premium. It's all been, um, and, and anything that has taken off and gained momentum, it's different, it's unique. It's not just what Australians expected of Irish whiskey. It's not competing on, uh, on, on, on sort of price and value level. Um, it has to be different. And that's what um, Australians are looking for. That's been the driving factor for the for the whole new cohort or generation of whiskey drinkers that have um, started been driving this uh, growth in Australia is premium and it's unique. And what about single grain? Because I know that's a, a big seller in the United States. In Europe, it kind of lies quite flat. There's, you know, different connotations and uh, that associated with it. Obviously, the US, it's a very familiar flavor point to people who would know bourbon more more closely than Irish. Um, what what about, I mean, I think it kind of falls into the category of not what people expect from Irish, but how does uh, single grain uh, do in, in Australia? Yeah, it's, it's fortunate, I suppose, that if you look at the spirits category, category or dark spirits category in Australia, um, bourbon is actually uh, a very popular category and has been for a long time, tends to be the, the two big uh, players, Jim and Jack, but at, at least there is a reference point for corn-based whiskies and um, de there definitely was a, a tie, um, a, a tie that could be kind of linked the, about the fact that you know single grains or non-malt, uh, non-malted barley uh, whiskey. So yeah, like I, I can speak for our own single grain. It's been uh, it's been something that has. Uh, 
been interesting to a lot of Australians. It's been it's piqued their interest. Um, it's uh, as a category single grain is still very very small in Australia, but you've continued to see um, new releases come down. I think there you know various different Japanese ones like the Cheetah. It's gone into the mainstream market in Australia, so the awareness is growing. There, there is um, a following there. Um, but it's still very small in comparison to single malt. And then I suppose the other um, the, the other state of play in the Australian dark spirits market for a long time has been rum because they actually produce their own rum and they've got a huge rum band brand called Bundaberg. Um, so it's uh, which is a Diageo owned. Um, Australian rum, which would be the, the number one selling rum in the country. So, um, uh, the, yeah, the, the, these kind of sweeter flavor profiles among Australian uh, dark spirits consumers may play into the favor of ourselves and Irish whiskey producers. And flipping that on its head, what about the flavor profiles of single pot still, or has any has any made it in any category down to, to Australia yet? Yeah, um, you know, there, there's uh, we we did launch our single pot still down there uh, about a year ago, and have been pleasantly surprised. Um, there's been really really positive feedback um, up until now. There there was obviously uh, one brand as a reference point for what single pot still was, and still most Australians have probably never tried it. And so so you, you've got a bit of a blank canvas, but. We've been, as I said, quite pleased with how it's gone so far. So the response has been good. And we, we I think, probably for a single pot still need to continue to uh, work on the education piece just so to, to help the understanding of what it actually is and how it differentiates from single malt and single grain, etc. And in general, I mean, that's a, a great point to lead on from, but in general, do, what is the Australian, I suppose, consumer's understanding of, of Irish whiskey? Is it, or Ireland as a whiskey producing nation? I think you said brand Ireland earlier on, you know, and do, do people in Australia think Ireland and think whiskey? Yeah, I think they do. They, they think Irish whiskey, they think Guinness, um, I think it's about 20 odd percent of Australians claim or trace Irish whiskey or sorry, Irish heritage, uh, maybe, maybe Irish whiskey heritage, uh, heritage for some portion of that, but um, they're very well aware of Ireland. Many Aussies have got up um, and visited Ireland. Um, and if they haven't been, they, they have, they come up to you at tastings and say they plan to go um so they, they do hold ireland in high regard they do recognize it as a whiskey producing nation but you know as you know pre-2012 there was you know a huge uh, uh limitation on the brands that that were available so their their understanding of irish whiskey has been tied to that and it's only in the last couple of years that it's it started to go beyond that and you've seen uh continued segmentation in the irish whiskey category down there and if you look at the data um 
it's it's all in the premium space that's where all the growth is it's in um exciting and um sort of pulling in australian whiskey consumers with uh unique flavor profiles a unique offering um yeah the, the at the value kind of our standard level it's hugely hugely competitive um is it a price, price sensitive segment yeah yeah it, it would be like i'd say there's um there's definitely a big um opportunity for premium whiskey in uh, australia but probably you know once you go beyond above $100 as a price point you um you probably cut out 90% of the whiskey consuming population so the other 10% that you know will, will play in the premium single malt space and there is a strong appetite for uh premium single malts but uh the even even in that segment the competition is fierce you've had in Australia, a huge amount of um, international whiskey come in. There's Taiwanese, there's the Indian whiskey guys, as you mentioned, the Australian whiskey scene um, coming from a very low uh, base with Tasmanian whiskey, which is probably more traditionally has been made kind of in the vein of, um, of, of Scotch whiskey almost, whereas a lot of the mainland distilleries now that have popped up have um, put their own spin on it and, and kind of um, made unique expressions of whiskey, which you probably couldn't tie to anywhere else in the world. Outside Australia, for example, you've got Starward in Melbourne, um, which are one of the, the early days Australian whiskey producers and one of the ones that were doing it on a bit of scale whereas down in tasmania very very small operations so really high priced whiskey so and very small volume so quite inaccessible for most australians so as the categories continue to grow you've had players like starward and a number of others that have been uh going for the wider market and they've released bottlings for 60 70 80 dollars that are accessible to a much wider percentage of the population, the whiskey consuming population. So you're seeing uh, a lot of growth in um, local Australian whiskey as well. Um, but, but overall, um, craft spirits and, and, um, and whiskey and gin as well in Australia is a huge trend. So there is in, in spirits, it's, uh, it's a very interesting time you're saying that once you go over that kind of hundred dollar price point you start losing consumers pretty drastically hundred dollars is about 60 65 euro i think in today's money um would you see most irish whiskey playing above or below the hundred dollar aussie mark most of the volume in australia would be under 100 dollars. that's probably where yeah 80 90 percent of the volume of irish whiskey happens and then the the entry level standard players will be priced sort of 45 50 dollars um, so that's again where you get closer to the volume but then you've had um huge amount of growth in say 50 to 60 dollars to 100 in the premium 
sec section or segment of the category and not just within Irish whiskey, within premium craft spirits. And um, that's where a lot of the volume is. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So when you're seeing new Irish whiskey coming into the market or even, you know, from your own experience, what way are most people entering uh, the Australian market? Because I, you know, from my understanding, there aren't a lot of uh, paddies down there uh, setting up shop like uh, like the teeling uh, uh, operation that's down there in yourself. Um, are people coming through like direct imports with large retailers like Dan's, or are they going through small distributors, or you know, ricocheting from other countries? Or what 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 are you seeing in those trends? Yeah, it's, it's a combination. The retail side or off-premise side of the Australian uh, market is very concentrated to a couple of players. So you need to be dealing with, you know, it's, it's essentially in uh, even outside the, the drink space, same in retail in grocery and a number of other sectors across the market it's sort of a duopoly setup where you've got two players who probably share maybe 60 70 percent of of the market um so the the retail side of things is very concentrated so you need to be definitely playing with the the two or three big players down there and then in the on-premise side of things, you have a lot of bar groups and um, they would operate kind of nationally. Um, so you're, you're dealing with them. So it's, it's, it's been a combination in terms of new um, Irish whiskies coming down into the market. Um, most of the, the importers distribution companies down there would have an irish whiskey in their portfolio so um they see the growth in irish whiskey they see the opportunity and there would be very few distributors down there that don't have one at least one irish whiskey in their portfolio so it is i suppose um if you're if you're a distributor in the australian market for spirits a box you need to take you need to have an irish whiskey customers are asking for it the bars are asking for it the retailers are asking for it um so yeah it's it's been a combination of how i've seen the the um irish whiskey entrance come down into the market and and our australian consumers um adventurous uh in the shelves you know if you see a new irish brand that's just landed they don't know it you know, there's no advertising behind it. Is that likely to sit or will people pull from the shelves of things they're not familiar with? Yeah, I think because the, like the on-premise, like here in, in Ireland or in the US, it's obviously hugely important for um, building your brand and driving consumers then into retail stores to to purchase it. Um, so that, le that level of uh, engagement in the on-trade, converting into the off-trade is still very, very important. But I'd also say because the retail side of things in Australia is so concentrated, there is probably an added ability for the retailer to pull in consumers just because of their presence and distribution um, and availability. So 
Uh, and uh, I, I would find the players down there in retail are, are good at education and good at holding, you know, whiskey tastings and their own events and um, kind of online and social media, etc. So um, I think it's 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 a bit of a, a combination. Um, yeah, there there are definitely Australian consumers who would come in looking um to discover new spirits and new brands um, obviously packaging is hugely important um, as i mentioned that segment of the irish whiskey category that you might see in the us with very irish looking traditional packaging um you don't see it so much in australia and the brands that have gone down that road don't tend to get the adoption by um, Australian consumers. So I think you you need to be um, you need to be premium. You need to be um, standing out on the shelf, and obviously the liquid has to uh, go and back that up as well. I'd I'd mention as well, you know, for us, some of the big successes have been because. Australia is very isolated from the rest of the world and Australians like to feel that there is an Australian connection somehow to something going on from the outside world internationally that's come in. Um, they, they love to see Australia do, um, do well internationally and um, they... Um, they will appreciate if you've spent some time looking at ways that your product can be can appeal um, specifically to the Australian market. So, for example, we released a single malt limited edition that had been aged in Australian Shiraz barrels. And we did a collaboration with a family-owned winery from the Clare Valley in South Australia. Um, and we took some of their um, premium, super premium annual vintage release wine called the Armagh, which is actually shared a connection with, with Ireland because where the vineyard is, the original Irish settlers that arrived there in the 1800s um, felt it resembled the rolling hills of Armagh and um, the guys in this winery, which is called uh, the Jim Barry Winery, have an annual release called the Armagh Shiraz, which is um, a beautiful Shiraz wine um, that retails for a couple of hundred dollars. And um, we took some of the barrels from that wine and brought them up um, to our distillery and matured uh, a single malt or finished a single malt um, in these barrels. And we launched this uh, whiskey exclusively in Australia. There was only 2,000 bottles of it, but um, the response to that was huge in terms of, um, you know, the whiskey community down there, which is very strong and very connected and, and very synced up with uh, Facebook groups and the like and also the drinks media and the wider media down there had a lot of interest in this Irish whiskey company who had taken the time, consideration and thought to partner with 
an Australian winery and released the first Irish whiskey that had been aged in Australian wine casks. So I would say, you know, uh, a bit of localization and, and looking at uh, something that can uniquely appeal to local consumers will be rewarded um, very highly if if you take the time and effort um, involved in uh, in doing a project like that. Absolutely. Um, and for the, when you're going towards the logistics side, again, I know you mentioned that you would be um, working quite closely with uh, bringing a lot of the, these products into Australia. Um, I suppose people, we mentioned Australia is very far away, um, which is not a surprise. Um, but in terms of logistics, it's incredibly far away. And in sometimes it can be, helpful you know there can be container shortages in australia and getting full containers to australia can be really inexpensive because basically the the big ports need empty containers um but at the moment um i think we were speaking to um some australian importers there the other day so there's uh, 40,000 uh, empty containers on the docks in sydney uh waiting for ships because it's no one will set there's such a container shortage but also a shipping shortage that no one's sending empty ships uh, when they could stay in Europe or in, in the Americas or in China and just do full loads back and forth. So how has, you know, COVID affected in terms of logistics, getting whiskey to Australia and then also consumption in Australia for the general public? Yeah, so kind of to break up your question on the transport or freight side of things, um, yes, Australia is very far away. So um, out, even outside the pandemic, you have to be thinking six months ahead in terms of um, new products or, or if you're dealing with big retailers, 12 months ahead almost. So if you're planning for... Uh, Father's Day, which is in September down there, you will be making that plan at the end of, of this year in terms of uh, items that you'd want to have on the shelves, filtering out. It's also a huge country and it's a continent. So locally, when the product arrives, it takes a long time to filter out nationally um, into the on and off trade and through all regional hubs of distribution. So that outside the pandemic is the reality of doing business in australia um it's it's uh it's something that you have to factor in in the pandemic this has obviously become exaggerated to, to um a degree where the timelines have been pushed longer normally it takes about three months to get a container of whiskey from Ireland down, landed in Australia and starting to roll out into stores. When the pandemic hit, because of the constraints put on freight globally, we took the move to give ourselves extra time. So made, making sure orders were being placed, you know, sort of six, eight weeks on top of the considerations we already had in place. And now, you know, over 12 months on, to be honest, it's continued to get worse. And um, I actually think it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. So it's a huge issue trying to get not just to Australia, but into the Asia Pacific region to get um, 
containers down there. So the costs are being pushed up, which can hit your product ultimately on shelf. Um, and the, the uh, decisions or agreements need to be made around who's going to wear those extra costs. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's been you know amplified by the pandemic and all the the issues that's put on the 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 industry. But I would say outside that, because it will end, things will improve um, eventually. I think by the end of the year, we're we're hoping for that things are a bit normal on the transport and freight side of things. But outside that, doing business in Australia or, or New Zealand even further, you have to factor in the time it's going to take. And if you're shipping stock down um, to get there for Christmas and it doesn't arrive till January, you've missed a, a key window. Um, so I suppose always give yourself as much time and, and add in some buffer um, periods when you're dealing with these markets be my advice. And how have consumer trends changed uh, since the pandemic began? Yeah, there's obviously been uh, a spike in, you know, Australia was already a market where retail is where all the volume happens for, for spirits and for alcohol in, in general um but with various different lockdowns and i was in melbourne uh, unluckily roll of the dice of all the australian cities it ended up being the one that actually had a really serious lockdown for a long period of time um but what what that happened but around the country there was various different constraints on the on-trade side of things and what that did is um it pushed the amount of sales that were going through retail up and it also accelerated the trend of um, shopping online and e-commerce for alcohol. So um, the big players down there, I think, were already very well set up in that regard. Um, I, I think they'd been doing some pre-preparation for Amazon entering the market and getting into the drinks um side of things in the past couple of years and and having their own distribution in the market so in response to that the big uh, drinks retailers in australia were already very advanced when it came to the e-commerce distribution and online shopping networks so um i think it's just been accelerated more people for the first time have, have ordered a bottle of our whiskey online or a slab of beer or a bottle of gin and it's it's not going to go away that's going to continue and there's been a lot of innovation um in in that side of things where you can in in metro melbourne or metro sydney you can have you can order and have uh delivery within an hour of placing the order at your home or business so um they have got quite advanced in that and, and fair, fairly early on the likes of uh, Dan Murphy's for Click and Collect. Um, they had license plate recognition for cars. So when you pull into the car park, the, your license plate is recognized and your order is brought out and ready to go. Your boot goes up and it gets dropped in and you keep driving. So um, things like that have been uh, impressive, I suppose, and a sign of the way things will continue to go in the future for uh, your your purchase and retailing of alcohol.
And around the world, and you know, particularly the US as well, you know, we saw the acceleration of of off premise sales during the pandemic. Obviously, on premise sales collapsed, but off premise sales accelerated aggressively, both in person and uh, e commerce. Um, but particularly in in person, um, comfort buying uh, became very evident. People who would have experimented and and maybe this week we'll try an irish whiskey next week we'll try a taiwanese whiskey or again the same with beers craft beer in the same sense that kind of went away a lot in the us and you know the sale and people move to brands that they're very familiar with whether it's their baileys or their jemison or or their you know gunpowder gin and and away from maybe some of the well i suppose competitors i was gonna say away from the craft end competitors definitely very craft but um perhaps some of that experimentation was lost. People weren't picking up the labels and reading them. They were grabbing the things they knew and uh, and heading on home. Uh, did you see a lot of that in Australia or did Irish get its, you know, I suppose the smaller Irish guys get their equal look in? Yeah, I think on the bigger brands that, that, that they definitely got an uplift or got a, a boost um from that side of things but also there was a trend of if i can't go out and i'm not going to be able to go and drink cocktails in uh or have dinner first and you know have cocktails i'm going to get a good bottle and i'm going to have it at home and so we did see a trend where if a consumer was normally buying our our small batch which is obviously the entry for our range there was trade up into our single malt because people were treating themselves um, so that was one factor and then um, cocktails at home uh, there was a big trend towards that as well so you know we certainly didn't suffer um, just despite maybe not being the you know in the market for a really really long time um, and then I suppose just to kind of tie us up nicely, if you were, you know, speaking candidly to people who are, you know, whiskey, Irish whiskey brands looking at Australia, is there any top line advice you, you'd offer them about um, trying to enter or grow in the Australian market? Yeah, I, I think I've touched on a, a few of the points throughout, but in, to sum it up, I would say, it needs to be premium. It needs to be unique. You need to be bringing something new to the table. Uh, the, the the Me Too um, sort of brands in in Irish whiskey or or attempts in Irish whiskey in the category in Australia, from my experience, haven't performed very well. And the ones that have worked are bringing something very new and unique. Um, whether that's in you know the the style of uh liquids you know for example our single pot still or the casks that you're using or the abv or limited edition bottlings um, it needs to be unique and the competition is fierce so you you know australia is a very consumers are very discerning um, they've been drinking whiskey and single malts for a very long time so you won't get uh, very far if you don't come in with uh, something that's going to catch their attention and also 
you know, as I mentioned, packaging is very important. It has to stand out on shelf. Price points have to match up. If you're looking to do volume, it has to be uh, has to be in the, the in the ballpark when it comes to competitiveness. Um, so yeah, that'd be that'd be my advice um, for the Australian market. And then um, I think understanding the Australian consumers getting out at various different whiskey shows and events. It's just there's no substitute for liquid on lips and uh, yeah, boots on the ground, um, and, and that very much worked in our favour over the last um, five or six years that we've been in the market. Well, Martin, I really appreciate uh, your advice to anyone who is looking at the, the Irish whiskey market in Australia. I want to say a very big thank you to our sponsors, which Two Stacks Irish Whiskey, of course, McConnell's Irish Whiskey, and Dingle Distillery. Um, to you, Martin, and to Teeling Whiskey Company for uh, allowing me to take up your time while you are uh, home on a, on a rare occasion back from the Asia-Pacific region and sitting um, and tuning in with us um, from Newmarket Square. A very big thank you to you, and uh, thank you so much for your insight and your time. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure to chat. Cheers. Ah, fantastic. And for anyone who wants to follow us online, make sure to check out potstill.com on twitter and instagram at potstilled underscore of course on facebook uh, facebook.com forward slash potstilled and if you give any of your uh, ratings or reviews on your podcast platforms or even just share this uh, podcast with your whiskey loving friends uh, it always helps to spread the word of irish whiskey thanks again <laughs>